This next episode isn't like the rest. We felt that we needed to use our platform to educate and inform as many of our listeners as possible on what they can do and what they need to know. So with that said, please listen. Don't just hear, but listen to what's being said. The world depends on all of us to come together, and that is not possible without empathizing and understanding one another. Before we continue on with the episode, we would like to take a brief moment of silence for George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmoud Arbery, and countless others that have lost their lives solely due to the color of their skin. Prayers to them and their loved ones. Now let's get on with the show. Hey. 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 One more time. One more time. So what's going on, everybody? I'm Yosef from Valley Basketball Skills Training. I'm Coleman from Binding Means Basketball. So welcome back to Under the Microscope, where we usually dissect the art of basketball. But today we're going to take a different approach and talk about something more critical and prevalent to what's been going on for the past few weeks. So sparked by the unfortunate and outrageous murder of George Floyd, Americans and even citizens of countries all across the world have been rallying together in support of African Americans demanding not only justice for Mr. Floyd, but equality in general. Today's episode is going to be a special one because we've invited three guests, well four but one actually got caught up having, having to help protesters that were arrested here in Miami recently. So um, these guests have strong backgrounds in activism, involvement in their communities, and insightful and informative perspectives on the issue at hand altogether. The way we're going to set up this episode is sort of like a Q&A where I just ask the panel a question and anyone can jump in and answer the question to provide their thoughts and insight and we'll try to keep it concise. But anyways, let me introduce our guests. So first of all, we have Frankie Hedgepeth, which was actually my roommate for four years at University of Miami before he started studying law at Yale University to do his part in preventing the social injustice issues at hand in our world today. We also have Aki Dean joining us again, who is not only a very well-known respected basketball skills trainer, as you all may know, but also a pastor in his community in Tallahassee. And lastly, we have Michael Deegan McCree, who is the Partnerships Coordinator at the Bail Project, which is an organization that uses a national revolving bail fund as a critical tool to prevent incarceration and combat racial and economic disparities in the bail system. So our fourth guest would have been Eric Onsang from the Miami chapter of the Dream Defenders, but um, like he said, he's been, he had things to do and he would have really liked to join us, but duty calls. So um, let's get to these questions. The first one is related to systemic racism in general. Although police brutality against African Americans is a huge issue, it's only a small piece in the bigger picture of systemic racism. Can you guys talk more in depth about what systemic racism actually is and provide some examples for our listeners who may be oblivious? I'm happy to take, take a portion of this question. Um, I actually really appreciate you guys having me on first and foremost. This is Michael Deegan McCree. Said I'm the partnerships coordinator at The Bail Project. And, you know, I, I love this question because... We're in a moment in time where this killing of, of George Floyd, this lynching of George Floyd, lynching of Breonna Taylor, and then a lynching of uh, another African-American man, Ahmaud Aubrey, that we then see two months later down the line, right, uh, because of a video, shows um, this overwhelming brutality and violence against the African-American community that more than often especially in our public school system, we are taught is something of the past, right? It's something that used to happen. If you look at anything from social studies books in third grade to Black History Month in February, we're teaching this, this issue of, of racial brutality and racial neglect in this country. We look at it as a historical point. And more than often, we fail to talk about 
the systematic racism that confronts us today. Some of the examples that I love to give, unfortunately have to give when talking about systemic racism against, against African-Americans in this country is when it comes to my background of, of mass incarceration, right? Um, at the Bail Project, we fight against criminal justice reform um, and, and trying to, to change a system that brutalizes African-Americans in a totally different way. And within the system of criminal justice reform, you have a, an inherent bias against African-Americans when it comes to the resources that we are given as a community, um, resources that we uh, have access to to chase the American dream, right? This American dream that that we're all that we're all pitched from from the day we enter our, our public school systems through trying to move up through this society. And so, thinking about things like access to academic scholarships, um, access to adequate housing, um, access to loans in order for African-American families to own a piece of property and build wealth. All of these programs um, that mostly originated in the early 20th century through legislation like the New Deal all had portions of racism built, baked inside of them that have made it extremely difficult for those from the African-American community to, to advance and prosper. And because of that, our, our ancestors and then our, our family members uh, have often been subject to lower quality housing, right? Lower quality health care, lower quality education, um, and put in very, very dangerous and lackluster situations that have forced generations of our people to eventually make decisions that aren't necessarily based in trying to find right their passion to live their life the way that they see fit, but put in situations of survival, which lead to, to unhealthy, unhealthy choices and, and sometimes to make decisions that are seen as criminal. Um, and because of that, matched with over surveillance of our neighborhoods, um, puts us at an extremely unfair advantage um, systematically when it comes to the criminal justice system. Um, and so that's one of the, the biggest examples that I like to use is that these baked in policies which put our people at a disadvantage, uh, forcing us to, to live a life of, of survival instead of convenience, lead to set up most of our young men and women uh, for these types of failures. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I like that for sure. People who haven't even heard of the Black Wall Street is, so as that not being mentioned in history books, and like you said earlier, just extremely crazy how a lot of our history and our, um, our background is kind of shielded from the typical American just so they don't have to deal with the actual racism that has ha occurred and built on from this country. So anybody else have any other um, input they want to put in? I would say uh, just, I mean, I agree with everything you said, and I mm -hmm. think it when, when we talk about racism in this country, I think it's impossible to ignore, but it's often ignored, you know, the systematic aspect of it, you know, that mm -hmm. at the end of the day, you know, as a, as a black male, we are put at a disadvantage nine times out of 10, and especially mm -hmm. those from impoverished neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. um, and it's an uphill battle um, that's been woven into the fabric of this country <laughs> from the start, from when we got here. And um, I just think that that's something, uh, you know, he, he, you articulated that way better than I ever could, but um, I just think that's something that has to be addressed when we're on this topic and really has to be acknowledged um, because I think a lot of people are ignorant of it, um, you know, whether by choice or by just not knowing, but um, ignorance of it doesn't 
negate the fact that it's there. Exactly. I want to. Um, I liked what you were saying about legislation about racism being baked into a lot of those things because I feel like sometimes there's kind of a tendency to talk about all of the like economic and health outcome and social disparities that exist as if they kind of just like happened or as if they just exist right, now right. instead of acknowledging that like they were created by the government like they didn't just come out of come out of nowhere so I appreciate you talking about that it's it's also to me seems important to acknowledge the way that like all of these things are connected so like when you were talking about criminal justice you also mentioned housing and I thought that like made a lot of sense because kind of going back to the legislation thing like we see we you can like go back and look at like the very moment that the federal government decided that like white people could live in these neighborhoods and black people could leave, live in these neighborhoods and obviously um, the neighborhoods they made available to black people were under-resourced so one like you were saying that affects the ability to build generational wealth but also where you live affects where you go to school where you go to school affects the kind of like education outcomes you can have and it affects the kind of like access to healthy food and like places for your kids to play outside and like quality health care and things like that and i think that interwovenness i guess is i think a, a helpful way for me to think about what it means when people say that racism is systemic I want to throw in yeah. one point, just an example, because what you just said about healthy food, I found this really interesting a few years back. Um, a player that I trained, his mother owned a hospital. Uh, or not, excuse me, not owned, I'm sorry. Um, she was the director of a hospital. And um, so this is, a, this is a black kid. And, um, you know, he, he had told me that she had told him that there were real meetings about, you know, with the leaders of, 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 of the hospitals around the city, where they are going to be putting fast food restaurants where they're going to be building the next KFC, where they're going to be building the next pop yeah. And every single time it was in impoverished black neighborhoods. Mm. Um, these things aren't by accident. <laughs> like, like if why we don't have access to healthy foods. And um, it, it's just, it's so deep um, outside of just, I, I mean, like when I, when I heard that and I found, wow, really like where they're building restaurants, they're having conversations about where it's going to be most beneficial and where they're going to be getting, you know, influx of people with heart disease. And, and they're planning these things like, this is this is something real now it just was an eye-opener for me so um yeah man it's it's just wild yeah 100 percent. Coleman, you want to get into the next question yeah yeah so you everyone mentioned how how systemic it's like it's way deeper than just um just the kind of social part of it like the legislation it's been set up for pretty much since the origin of the country but um just talk about like the the kind of day-to-day -day, like subtleties in the social aspect of it like um, some some examples, whatever it may be, of of times when people may not even notice, but racism is present, even just in day to day kind of interactions. I'll I'll, I'll speak on you know this first. I mean, I'll give a story where you know, I went to a conservative Catholic school to play basketball, and mm -hmm. uh, very rare that there was a African American uh, <laughs> at that school that didn't play a sport. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, so just a simple, simple task of walking into the bookstore when there's hundreds of kids going in there to get books. And um, mm. throughout that day and me and two of my teammates are asked, you know, we can't come in with a backpack. And um, I'm like, OK, well, mm. why do they have a backpack? Why do they have a backpack? But we were literally not allowed in. And I mean, little stuff like that. And as you're you know, grabbing your books, and you have to carry them all by hand. You know, you see 20, 30, 40 white kids come in all with backpacks and they're being greeted. And we're being watched and, and just little things like that. I think um, mentally it's taxing and I don't think it's talked about enough, but um, it, it's a very real thing. 
um, especially with mental health. You know, that's, it's always been around, but it's becoming a lot more um, discussed um, in, you know, the last few years. And I mean, there's th real things. It's, these are things that will unfortunately can shape a worldview of somebody at a young age. Um, and it can shape a negative worldview towards other people that maybe, you know, we shouldn't, I'm speaking from personal experience where I've looked at, you know, all older white people um, with, with uh, I'm a little bit hesitant to be open with them because do they have some hidden agendas? Are they um, mm -hmm. being politically correct, but deep down have biases against me? I mean, I've experienced this with my family because my wife is white. <laughs> I've experienced this with her grandmother when she finds out I'm black and now she loves me. But back then when she first found out there was an issue with it. Mm -hmm. I've experienced it with my, um, you know, with my wife's parents having issues. I mean, these things are like real and it, and it causes real pain. A lot of times, if you're not careful, animosity can build up. Um, and I think I don't agree with, with everything that goes on. And um, I do think it's a much deeper story with, with looting and rioting and all those different things where it's not just black people doing it, which is a, I'm sure we'll probably get to eventually. Um, but it builds up a lot of animosity that can sometimes be let out in the wrong ways. I'll say that much if we're not careful. Yeah, I think um, this is a really, you know, this is a personal question. I think we all can pull out a plethora of stories, right? Where there's that that subtle racism um, mm -hmm. where we can either point to that that first time, right? Mm -hmm. Eight, nine, ten years old, maybe mm -hmm. in a department store where somebody working there is like, oh, you can't touch that, right? Very mm -hmm. similar story like that you just told. Um, but I'll, I'll harken back to a story, um, when I was, uh, in college, I went to St. Mary's College of California in the Bay Area, um, another con conservative-ish, you know, uh, Catholic mm -hmm. college, um, real small, um, and there was a, a classmate that asked me a question, um, just a, a simple question, right, of like, uh, what is it like to be black, right? Um, and it wasn't out of the blue, it was part of class discussion, but the way I always like to answer this question about subtle racism is that the, the systemic racism that we just talked about is so baked in that it creates that subtle racism, right? Like even from folks that we would consider like a white liberal, right? Like somebody who like really doesn't have any racist agenda behind the way that they were raised or the, the, the policies they support or the people that they vote for. But racism is, racism is as American as apple pie, right? <laughs> like, like to the point where I explained to this young man, every time I walk into an establishment and my brothers walk into an establishment in this country, we are reminded that we are black, mm -hmm. right? Like, and think about that. As a white man, you don't walk into a Target or a Starbucks or a Barnes and Noble or a Costco and automatically you're reminded that you're black. And the reason why you're not is because the subtle racism in this country is so strong that every single one of us, when we walk into an establishment in this country, we have to know how to act in regards to every white person in that place in order to survive. Mm -hmm. That itself is subtle racism, mm -hmm. right? That we have to be a, aware every single time we walk outside of our door and into an establishment of how to 
react towards every white person, man, woman, or child in that, in that space. And that's not something a white person will ever have to do in regards to a black person, unless they like, for some reason, went to deep East Oakland, right? Or went to the South side of Chicago, right? Mm. Right. Unless they were going to one of those neighborhoods, which there's no reason for them ever to have to do that. Right. Mm. They don't have to think in that manner, but every place that we go, right. I mean, you just told this story right here about he had, he had to go get his books, right. He, he has mm. to do that to survive. Mm-hmm. He has to go to the college bookstore to get his books. Therefore he has to know how to, how to move, how to speak, how to act. Mm. And that's the subtle racism within itself, that the way that we might, you know, jive with each other, that's not necessarily going to get us by on a daily basis to provide for ourselves and our families as we move through this, this country. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of like an extra layer of caution that we're all forced to take. And it just, it's just for the sake of making others around us feel more comfortable instead of us having to be comfortable ourselves. So that's just... That, that's that subtleness of it and that subtlety of it that kind of just people don't, I don't think, understand unless they're a person of color or a black person in general. I feel like we've had conversations about this before, Yosef. When we're living in, in South Miami, like two miles away from like campus and where most of the other students were living and people would say things like, oh, that's kind of like a rough neighborhood, right? Like, isn't that a, a bad area? And it's like, we're literally like a walk away from you. It's not mm-hmm. any less safe than where you live. The only thing that's different is that it's a much higher population of Black people in our neighborhood than in your neighborhood. That kind of coded language, I think, is always frustrating because it just, it's a reminder that there's like so much explaining that you have to do because people, either they're not aware or they're not intending to like make a racist comment, but like that's still what it is. And it's just, mm-hmm. uh, I think that's, that's one of the more frustrating things you try to like call people on that or like challenge them and they get offended. And then it's just like, it's almost never a productive conversation. The, the only way that I've ever been able to get around that is just like asking, what do you mean by that? Yeah. What makes you say that? Those kind of questions. Cause then it's like, yeah, it's like and, until you're forced to explain why you have this like deeply racist belief, even if that's not how you recognize it, mm-hmm. like people just say it without even thinking. The amount of times I've had people come up to me, white girls, you know, in, you know, in college or in high school, what's up dog homie and throwing up. Like, <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. gosh. That's the most frustrating. <laughs> like, like, what is this? But like in their mind, like, and again, I don't, I really don't think because it's so ingrained, they understand what they're doing. Mm-hmm. I really don't think that they like, understand like that's, that's disrespectful. Yeah. Or, or, or even the simple thing, uh, you know, I think from, from black people to black people, you talk white. So because, yeah. so, so because I, I know how to articulate what I'm saying, I talk white now, or you act white, you know, those sorts of things. I think, I think we, you know, as, as a people even do it to each other without realizing it, mm-hmm. um, that like a black person is supposed to be this way and a mm-hmm. white person is supposed to be that way. And that's not mm-hmm. how it's supposed to be. I think we just have to be very, very careful with that mm-hmm. um, on our side as well. Cause like I've said, I've, I've been guilty of, lumping all white people into a category when necessarily they haven't they haven't done anything to me maybe they don't have those views but because of my past experiences i'll automatically be looking for a red flag of um just waiting for them to say some racist or say something slick and mm-hmm. so it's 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 really a it's a human being thing it's just that unfortunately we've been on the short side of the stick a lot longer or a lot more prevalent mm-hmm. um, because we haven't been in a position of power i guess yeah yeah exactly like all the stereotypes that play into it are always just assumed like with um one of my other roommates, he said he was at a cookout, and then uh, his friends, his friends that he's been knowing for for years, they asked him, um, what would he like to drink? And then 
they offered, would you want Kool-Aid? And then he like, no, I don't really like Kool-Aid. And then they were like genuinely confused, like genuinely confused, like not understanding how do you not, I thought everybody didn't, I thought all of you guys liked Kool-Aid. And then the, the you guys part is like what really throws me off. So it's just, um, it's just those stereotypes. I think that people need to just be educated on because they don't even realize that they just take it as fact and that's what it is to them. So they don't even realize to them. I think education or experience is probably the best education for like, Mm-hmm. most white people in terms of like the the people that ask them that probably have been in a, an extremely sheltered environment like they mm-hmm. they've been around a minimal amount of black people just because like for a lot of white people there's no reason why they want to you know get outside their comfort zone mm-hmm. and, and go you know be in an environment with a bunch of black like it's just it's not what they would choose to do and if you're not exposed to to many many black people then you're gonna have to resort to those kind of stereotypes that you hear mm-hmm. which is and i see this personally like even like not my immediate family but like distant family members where they'll exhibit kind of the same type of things just because they are in like the country of whatever state where they aren't really around black people so the only kind of image in their mind is these stereotypes and really the only way to get out of that is to be in an environment and, and actually um, like kind of immerse yourself in that environment. It, it, it has to be done. And, and that's kind of a tough part is because, you know, like how, how are we just going to tell white people like, Oh, you have to go mingle with um, a group of black people. And they're going to be like, well, there's no point of me just like going down and, and doing that. Um, so I think that's going to take creativity. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't know what you guys thoughts on that is in just terms of exposing white people or, because again, like education, they're not just going to read a book about any, like the best education, I think in this sense is experience. And mm-hmm. it's something that I've struggled with because, you know, when I, when I hear a white person being completely ignorant about it, I just, I don't know where to go from there. And it like, so I'm just curious about what you guys thoughts on that and how they can kind of um, stop like resorting to those stereotypes and actually immerse themselves in it. Yeah, I mean, one thing that comes to mind when you were when you were talking about like the just the idea of like stereotypes coming from lack of exposure, I think that like now with just like how accessible information is generally, I I have a hard time accepting like lack of exposure as an excuse for ignorance or like acceptance of stereotypes now just because like you can so easily read and watch and listen to so many things that give such a much more full and like rich story about what black life in the u.s is then i don't know whatever like reality tv or like perpetuations of stereotypes that you could consume that would like satisfy the like preconceived notions that you already have i think it's like incumbent on white people who wouldn't otherwise interact with black people in their daily lives to go out of their way to kind of get that that sort of education just because they're again going back to like housing segregation just because of like the the lack of interaction that that defines a lot of people's lives. I think it's, if, if we have to rely solely on like person to person interaction over like a long period of time and like in a sustained way, I feel like it's going to be tough to, to reach everybody. Yeah. But I think something has to kind of breed that interest, whether it be through social media or just like mass media in any way, continuing to show white people, because white people have to understand that this is a problem before anything mm-hmm. is going to change. Um, like I've seen a lot of people saying that recently and the more that white people will understand it's a problem and that they're the ones that are responsible for changing it, 
the more that they are going to be able to educate themselves. Because like you said, there's so much information out there now that there's no excuse not to educate yourself, but it's just kind of breeding that interest for them. Like, or they have to breed it themselves, but a lot of people are just like, all right, why, why do I have to do this? And it's ignorant as hell, but like, it's tough. It's a really tough situation, but um, there, there really is no excuse. It's just kind of once white people accept that it is like, their responsibility to change it. It's not just something that is going to happen. That's when kind of that education will come, in my opinion. I think taking it even further, when we're like um, uh, interacting with people that aren't just like either white or black, but like let's say from like uh, an Asian descent where we don't really have any idea generally about what struggles they face and what um, subtle racisms or subtleties that they face. Because then it would require like everybody to have to research and um, understand every single kind of culture in the world. And it's kind of like, I don't want to say a lot to ask of somebody because that's definitely, a, it's, it's a lot more of a useful thing to do for sure. But it's just, um, it's hard to find the motivation to just go out of your way one day to say, hey, let me um, learn about how people in, I don't know, like Indonesia interact with one another. Let me learn about how like all these other countries that I may never ever interact with. But again, with white and white and black people, it is a lot more of a understood issue in america just because it's something that everybody kind of sees on the news every day so i think there is a certain um level of accountability that we have to hold them to to understand what's going on in america but um another thing to consider is just that the motivation to even do all that research and understanding of what's going on in black communities is does it goes as far as to their willingness to understand so if they don't even have that willingness to understand it does make it difficult for them because like like with uh, the past um story with my friend with uh, how he had to explain how he doesn't like Kool-Aid and how all black people don't like Kool-Aid, he was that point of um, contact where they realized, all right, well, maybe stereotypes aren't as uh, generally or generalized as they should be. Like, we shouldn't assume that all black people like Kool-Aid or all black people like fried chicken or watermelon or whatever. So that was the point of, that was the point where they realized that. So, and then this was when he was in, I think he said early high school. So they've gone 13, 14, 15 years without ever feeling the need to to research that themselves so it's kind of tough to have people um have that responsibility to do that themselves which i think is pretty pretty shitty but it is just the way that that situation is do you guys have any thoughts on how that get that gap can be bridged i think it um i think there's a few things one um the way black people are portrayed in society you know music wise mm-hmm. um entertainment wise i think that all you know kind of feeds into a certain narrative Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the only way to really break that narrative is to like, at least to me, like to have like real conversations. I think sports is a great way to do that. You know, activities where people can literally come together and actually have conversations and, mm-hmm. and by conversations, cause you know, me personally, like I, I think protesting is great. Um, I think bringing awareness is great. What I don't personally think is great is if you don't mess with what I believe, unfriend me, unfollow me, whatever the case may be, I don't have with you. And the reason why I don't believe that's good is people follow people that believe the same things as them. So if I'm a Black Lives Matter person, I'm gonna be looking at a Black Lives Matter hashtag. And I'm usually, for the most part, unless I'm gonna go at it on someone on Twitter or whatever the case may be, I'm usually gonna be receptive and look at things that have a similar viewpoint to myself. When I have older, you know, Caucasian people on my Facebook, they're usually all posting the same thing. And when I'm on their Facebook, and what I mean by that is like, let's say, you know, my mother-in-law comes over, which she was just up here for about a week. And I'm sitting next to her and I'm looking at her scroll, all her viewpoints echo her own, right? Because if they don't, if she doesn't like other viewpoints, she's probably not going to be friends with them. 
Mm-hmm. And so what I think that causes is it causes a closed mindset and where you don't get out and you don't get to, um, you know, experience other points of view. So for example, I think we talked about, I, talk, I think I brought this up in the last discussion we had, you know, mm-hmm. there's a white lady at my church who's, you know, 60 years, older than 60 years old. And um, it was an uncomfortable conversation for me because I'm, you know, a young 27 year old tattoos on my arms, black pastor. And I'm in a room with five other white people who majority are over 40. I think everyone's over 40 actually. Right. And I'm having a conversation. I'm telling her my experiences and she didn't really understand a lot of the things that I was going through. And her thought process was this, well, I lived, you know, when people, you know, couldn't drink at the same water fountains and when black people and when there was segregation, all these different things. So in my mindset, I hated it back then. I didn't think it was right. But in my mindset, because I didn't see those things, I didn't see you having to go to a different water fountain. I didn't see you um, not being able to go to the same school as my kid. I thought things were better. And if I don't have that conversation with her, even though it may be uncomfortable and I don't know if she's going to disagree with me or agree with me, she's never going to understand my point of view. She left that conversation now understanding my point of view. I see her make a Facebook post standing with white people and all those different things as a 65-year-old white lady that I can almost guarantee if I didn't have that conversation with her, she would have never thought those things. And just like I have more empathy now to someone who may be ignorant um, because now it's like, well, when I think of her point of view, she's only been around white people. And yes, I don't think that's an excuse, but I think it's just the reality of it. If she's only been around white people, she only has a certain friend group. Um, and it's kind of echoed the same sentiments as her. She's only around people that are 65 years or older, so she doesn't know any better. It's like, mm-hmm. all right, now I have a little bit more empathy and I want to have that conversation. So hopefully I can open your mind and um, give you a new perspective. So I think just programs, man, and just having real conversations and doing things, doing the work when it's uncomfortable because it's easy to say, you know, I want you to believe what I believe. And if you don't see it, you know, F you. But it's like, when she told me that, I was like, wow, like to some degree, I actually understand where she's coming from. Like, I don't agree. it Now, if I tell her my sentiment, she just completely disregards everything I say. And like, no, it still doesn't exist. I don't agree with that at all. Mm-hmm. I'm never going to agree with that. But I understand why she had the thought process that she did. Mm-hmm. I think that's just important, man, is having empathy and understanding people that they might not agree with us initially. But we got to enlighten them and educate them so that hopefully, you know, we can give them another perspective. Yeah, I, 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 I tend to agree with the with the angle of, of educating. I know there's, you know, there's this back and forth about, well, you know, it shouldn't be African-Americans or those who, who identify as black burden to, to educate. And I, I, I agree with that. I, I wholeheartedly do. Um, personally, I'm comfortable and okay with taking on some of that responsibility because like it was just alluded to um, for the past two, I wanna say past two weeks, Every day I've put up a post on my, um, on my Instagram story saying, like if, you, like, if you're willing to opt in, like, I'm willing to give you the resources, right? Like, mm-hmm. I have this firm belief that there are a lot of white folks, I mean, sh- shoot, younger than me, my age, older than me, it don't matter, that just aren't there, right? They're not there because they don't need to be. Um, I think this is one of my favorite lines. I don't know how many of y'all seen it. I'm going to assume most of you uh, saw that movie, Remember the Titans with Denzel Washington, right? And uh, there's a scene where, you know, they're walking out of the restaurant where the white restaurant owner just said, we can feed y'all around back, right? Mm -hmm. And one of the black teammates gets mad on his white teammate who 
wasn't even wasn't even one of the the original like racist white guys on the team right he just like didn't get it right he didn't know um and it's my favorite line in the movie he was like he didn't want to know because he didn't need to know mm. right and like that's what i think we're talking about here right mm-hmm. it's like white folks don't want to know because they don't need to know they don't they don't want to know that trauma right they don't want to experience that trauma they don't want to feel like they're part of the problem and at the end of the day they don't need to they don't Mm -hmm. need to and so for me my consistent challenge especially these past couple days has been like and we, we we're talking about it right here like it's not going to change unless white people opt in and what I mean by opt-in is like not just educating yourself, but like when it gets scary, like I still need you standing next to me, right? Like when we're marching down the street and cops are approaching, I need you to still be standing next to me. When your paycheck, when your relationships, when your connections are all in jeopardy, unless white people are willing to put those things on the line, we're not going to arrive. Like it can't just be black folks. And in order for them to understand how vital it is for them to play that role, I honestly feel like it, it, it's gotta be some of my role to do that educating, right? And that means showing them what books by black authors that they can read, what articles they can read, what documentaries they can watch, what black organizations they can donate to to advance the cause, right? Like mm. there are so many steps right, that white people can take. If you're you're not a protester, if you can throw $15 every month towards a education fund that's dedicated to young black men, you're playing a role as a white person, right? But if you can't give that $15, but you can read Between the World and Me by Ta-Nehisi Coates and start a book club with other white friends of yours to discuss that, and then maybe invite a black friend to talk to that group of folks about how they perceive that book, you're putting in the work of educating, right? Like there are small roles that you can take mm-hmm. that prove to me you're opting in, right? That Black Lives Matter to you, that you want to see systemic change to end racial bias, to end racial violence, to end the miseducation of people who don't identify as Black about what Black life, Black family, and Black suffrage actually is. like. Mm-hmm. opt in and, and I'm willing to help you take those steps and, and you don't have to do every single one. If you take one, I feel mm-hmm. like, I feel like you're making a move and I can appreciate that. Mm-hmm. I like that. I think it also requires some, some camaraderie in the, in the sense like, okay, you, you've spoken on this, like in the summit too, where it's like, um, and you just mentioned it, like unfollow me if you don't agree with this. Well, then you have no chance of converting them into or not converting them necessarily, but kind of influencing them out of their ignorance. If you're just saying unfollow me, it's creating more of a divide where the more we come together, at least we have a chance of influencing. And Mm -hmm. if you try, it doesn't work. Well, then at least you try, you know, like the more and more division that that there kind of is, the harder it's going to be to kind of see on that, see eye to eye. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So let's move on to the next question. So the next question is regarding the protesting, like you guys were talking about earlier. So lots of times we see people try to express that balance is not the answer. However, in the past, it seems that a lot of positive radical change, in fact, began with some form of riot or violence. So obviously violence isn't recommended, but is it a necessary tool to use to get our voices heard through protesting or whatever the situation may be? 
man, I feel like we're all gonna have have something to say on this. I think this is this is one of my favorite discussions to have with folks. Mm-hmm. Um, so so I'm in, I'm in Los Angeles right now, and I, I live on the west side. And so two weekends ago, when there was a big protest in LA and Santa Monica, Long Beach. You know, you're driving down the street, you know, you saw brothers busting out of the Jordan store, right, with boxes. And, (laughs) you know, you had, you know, so you got the looting going on. And then, you know, in New York, there were a couple of, I guess, a police officer got hit by a car. But then in Minneapolis, you see, right, the burning of cop cars, the burning of the third precinct, right? Mm -hmm. And I think we get really distracted when the media starts looking just at the violence and not understanding, you know, what the violence comes from. Mm-hmm. And one of the first things I say about my perspective is this country was started 250 years ago, but the transatlantic slave trade started 400 years ago, right? So you have racial brutality and violence against a singular folk, right? For over 400 years on one continent. So for you to originally think that any type of violence is unjustified is wild to me like you need to take Mm -hmm. a second and really think right about Mm -hmm. why would a people react in such an explosive way right we have a a a unwritten social contract of things such as we will not throw a molotov cocktail into a police cruiser right we're not gonna bust into a jordan store and just take all these shoes right um but we also have another unwritten contract, a social contract with the authorities that are supposed to serve us based on tax dollars that we pay, right? Mm-hmm. And that's that a police officer isn't gonna jam his knee into the neck of a black man for eight minutes and 43 seconds until his body goes limp. And so you have to think about what this, this violent reaction is. Um, now I'm not gonna, this is gonna be me speaking on behalf of Michael Deegan McCree when I look at movements such as this and I see um, violence and I say, okay, what, what is unacceptable violence? What is acceptable violence? And to me, you're not gonna see me out here doing this, but I don't have a problem with folks lighting the police cruiser on fire. I don't because you have broken a social contract with the people that you are supposed to be there to protect and serve. And so in many of the revolutions that we've seen before our time, right, violence is not the answer, but it has a role. And I think the role that violence has is bringing people's attention to an injustice that is so painful, an injustice that has gone on for so long and has been unanswered for such a monumental amount of time that a community feels like this is the last way that we can catch people's attention. This is the only way that people can start asking who weren't paying attention at all, wow, why is there so much anger? And then when there is the skill set of conveying that through peaceful protest, through press conferences, through negotiations with governmental officials and through activists being given a voice, then you can create that change. So for me, I think violence is, is a necessary portion. I don't think it's the answer, but I think it's a necessary portion of creating change for sure. Violence you know, is 100% a symptom of an underlying issue. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, I'm speaking from a, a Jesus point of view, which I know that everybody believes in. That's fine. But um, I, I want to be very careful because I don't think violence is the answer at all. Um, I think, again, it is a symptom. And I think that even though, again, I don't agree with it, I think God can use violence for certain things and to bring awareness. Again, I don't personally agree with it. Um, but I even think about Jesus. Um, Jesus went to the temple um, when they were selling things at the temple and he started flipping tables in the, in the temple, right? Um, mm-hmm. You know, getting stuff out the way. And I don't think that's always the answer, but for that time, it was the answer for him. And, you know, that's what God wanted him to do. And that's what he did. So I personally don't agree with, you know, looting and all that type of stuff. That's not, it's not what I would, you know, believe in. That's not what I do. I understand why it's done. I think for me, it's more of a heart thing. And what I mean by that is you can do wrong actions with the right intentions and they're still wrong actions, right? Mm-hmm. You can do wrong actions with the wrong intentions. And they're terrible. I mean, they're just completely wrong. And I think, and again, I, I don't agree with it, but what is your purpose behind it? Are you doing it just because you finally got that, you could finally got a green light and a free pass to get away with jackets with Jordans out, you know? Or is there an actual reason behind why you're trying to do it? Uh, are you flipping the tables because you just wanted to be destructive and it gives you a high? Or are you flipping the tables to bring it awareness that this is wrong? And, and that's what, like, I think ultimately is extremely important. Like, what is the heart behind it? Because you have some people that are using this unfortunate situation, you know, as opportunists. Now I can do things and not, you know, necessarily, you know, see the repercussions of what I'm doing because I'm not going to get, I'm not going to get caught or I can get away with it or whatever the case may be. And I think that's 100% wrong. So I don't know. I think that's a, that's a really interesting topic. I don't, I don't condone violence. I don't believe in violence. Um, but at the same time, like I'm going through a personal thing in my life right now. Um, and I got some bad news earlier today and I'm not going to lie. Like I was very upset and there were some violent thoughts that came to my mind. Um, so I understand why it happens because that's, I mean, we're all human. And when you feel like you've been held down for such a long time, um, you don't necessarily know how to respond. Um, and sometimes, I mean, we've all gone through it when the first reaction a lot of times is to lash out. Um, and again, I don't think lashing out is always right, but I think it can still reap positive benefits. Even if it's not the right action to do, I think there still can be benefits from it. Uh, so hopefully that, I don't really answer the question at all. I think it's a really tough topic. Um, I don't condone it, but I'm hoping that good comes out of it. If it's going to, cause it's always going to be done. People are going to do it. And if it is done, I'm hoping something positive comes out of it. I think you both, you both said made some important points. I think in general, I tend to agree uh, with you, Michael, about one, just, just violence as like a, a way to like get leverage so that like when you, when you're making demands, like political demands, they historically have fallen on deaf ears if there's nothing that the like party who you're negotiating with stands to lose by not answering your demands. And so I think violence and like destruction of property um, is a way to gain leverage so that you can like get to the to the negotiating table and like make your demands heard. And I also think it's just like the idea of the, the US government or like state or local government saying that violence is like unacceptable is completely ridiculous to me just because like policing is inherently violent every every interaction with the police carries the threat of force with it like that's their whole job so it's for any for any state with a police department to say violence is the answer doesn't make any sense the u.s government has been using violence to like invade other countries and take resources and like 
quote, quote, unquote, like established democracy for as long as any of us has been alive and probably longer. And so it's just like, you can't hold all of those beliefs at the same time. It doesn't make any sense. And so I think for me, it just makes it obvious that like, it's not really, when people at least in positions of authority are saying violence isn't the answer, they're not saying like violence is unacceptable or immoral. They're just saying like, your particular expressions of violence don't work with our system. And so you need to stop them. I think it's very hypocritical. I mean, you think about Native Americans. I mean, right. when we got, I mean, it's, I don't know. I, I 100% agree though with that statement. Um, it is very, 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 very hypocritical. Yeah, even like how we, um, or how Americans a long time ago fought against the British to establish their independence from them. It was the same. They got fed up with the way things were going. They said, all right, we're going to do it our way. And then they just fought against them and eventually got rid of them. So in that sense, it wasn't much of a racial thing, but it was more of a uh, culture, uh, country thing. But the same same principle still applies. I've got a question for you all just mm -hmm. on that same topic because yeah. I actually had a meeting with some college-age uh, members of my church a little bit earlier about this exact topic. What do you guys think about violence? Because in, in this sense of stereotypically, you know, black people are viewed upon as violent and dangerous and those different things. How do you feel about, or do you even care about violence potentially confirming stereotypes to those who already view us in that light, even though that light may not be accurate? I think, I think it's kind of unfair because if we were just peacefully doing everything without causing any disruption, then whatever we're upset about will never be focused on or uh, taken seriously. Like, as long as you don't bother anybody about it, then it's fine. But if that's the case, then nobody's really going to take that situation seriously. But then on the other hand, I think when you direct that anger and that, that energy in the right direction where you're like, like you, what you were mentioning, it, it depends on your intent with it. If you're just doing it to take advantage of a situation to like kind of purge out and do all this looting and get your favorite Jordans that you've been waiting for, or are you doing it more so because you're actually enraged with what's going on? And are you just so fed up to the point where you feel like there's nothing else that you really can do but be be violent and disrupt the economy, disrupt the uh, community, and do whatever you got to do to get your voice heard? It's an unfair unfair position that we're put in, definitely. But it's not it's not what is expected of us, but it's what is hoped for us to do. So they won't have to deal with what what's going on at the heart of it. Yeah, I I just think it's definitely because I, I I thought that too. I thought like well now we're just confirming like the angry black man or the angry black woman, but if I'm not the angry black man, if I'm not the angry black woman, then what I want to get done just won't get done. And it'll just be it'll just be brushed off to the side, like how all these peaceful protesting has been going on for years. So when it, I think it, it is kind of like a necessary evil in the to get things accomplished and get things done to be listened to and to be heard. It, it does depend on the intentions behind it. Are you just doing this because you're actually enraged? or Are you doing it because you just want to get the new pair of Jordans that are out? But yeah, so if we're moving on to the next question, I want to uh, make sure we get to a lot. I know I sent you guys a lot of the questions already, but I want to make sure since time is going by fast. One thing we've heard a lot of activists say is a uh, solution to nearly all of our problems is just to vote the people that we want in office to represent us. Do you think the issue or the, do you think the solution to our problems is really just as simple as just voting, voting it out or just um, putting somebody that we want to represent us in office? Is that is it really that simple? And if so what what do you say to people that want to vote and do go to vote but when they get there they don't see anything on the ballot that um represents what they feel like they need and feel like they deserve so my my background is is politics i'm i'm a political strategist and legislative advocate by training mm -hmm. um everything from 
writing my own piece of legislation that's been passed in the state of California to well a principal lead on federal bills, um, you know, uh, testifying in front of in front of committees. And what I would say to that answer, I, I mean, I have this discussion all the time, mm -hmm. is it, when people say get out and vote, um, what I wish they would say is consistently stay engaged with the civic process. That's what mm -hmm. I wish people would say. Mm -hmm. Because yes, if you just go out and you, and you register and vote, which is extremely important, and to all the black people, people of color listening to this podcast, I really hope that you go out and register and you go and vote because there is an ancestor that gave their life, that gave their, their security and their safety for you to be able to just log on to the registrar's uh, website and and register and then walk down stand in line and vote so that does have to happen um, but no it's not as simple as just voting you have to stay engaged um, with with what this is this representative democracy mm -hmm. um, and and what that means is you will get policies that are better for your community you will get representatives that are better for your community and you will get measures on the ballot that are better for your community if you are engaged 365 all year round if you are applying pressure uh you know if you pay attention once a week to what's going on your city council what's going on county board of supervisors what's going on at your state legislature and what's going on in congress you just give one day right or give half an hour each day to looking at what pieces of legislation are, are coming up in all, all of those bodies and you know who represents you at all of those levels. If we have a collective of folks that, that does that, you can apply pressure for them to vote or not to vote for a piece of legislation that's going to impact your life, right? You have the ability to then if, there are a number of, of votes that you don't like that have taken place. If there are a number of uh, bills that your representative has brought that you don't agree with, then that's when you get to use the elected process, right, to get that person out of office. But if you wait a month, right, until that next election, you're already too late, right? Mm -hmm. that, that person who's sitting in that seat who has that political war chest of money, resources, endorsements, and backers, they're, they're not going anywhere, right? And so, yes, voting is extremely important, but there's so much more to a representative democracy. There's so much more to that process that we really do have the power to change um, if we're paying attention. And mm. I will admit this, it's, it can be exhausting, right? Definitely. For me, mm -hmm. I love it, because it's what I do. Right. Like mm -hmm. I love politics. I love the game. It's chess to me. Mm -hmm. um, and I also really do understand the impact that it has on my people and our community. Um, but I, I understand your 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 interest may be something totally different. This is how I make my living. So I'm just I'm in mm -hmm. it because I'm in it. Mm -hmm. But if you you know, if you do have that outrage, right, we're talking about this violence like that violence doesn't mean anything if you're also not engaged in the moments in time three months from now, right, when this is simmered down, if you don't understand 
which candidates could possibly represent you and what their platforms are and what policies they support and what maybe their past voting record is. If you don't understand those things, then yeah, things aren't going to change, right? If we have a, a, a 20% voter turnout rate and the majority of the people that come out to vote are older than 40 and don't look like us, well, yeah, mm -hmm. things aren't going to change. Um, mm -hmm. So, so my suggestion and, and, and my request and my plea is if you want to see these things change, pay attention to who your local district attorney is, right? Mm -hmm. Take a look to, at who your district judges are, right? Like, yeah, we want Donald Trump out of the White House, but the impact on your community is coming from really, really, really powerful folks that I guarantee you don't know who they are because you're just not engaged enough. You really aren't. And so if you want those changes, you got to look at who your state assembly member is, who your state senator is, who your district attorney is. Like those are positions that matter. Your county commissioners and supervisors, like the amount of power that they have on how your neighborhood is shaped and the resources that your children get is, is way more than, than the president of the United States. Um, so being engaged in the process, in civic engagement, um, will then allow you to make an informative vote. And then yes, an informative vote, that will make a world of difference for sure. Personally speaking, um, like you said, like politics is your thing, it's what you've been making your living out of. For people that don't really have that much exposure to the politics and don't have that much exposure to like their civic duties because of their lifestyle and like they're um they're not really i mean they should definitely be but they're not really concerned with it just because their day-to-day -day activities are far more important to them what are some things that you can tell them that all right it's, it's it's as simple as doing this like just start with this first and then then go into this like what what's like a step-by-step -step process that people that are completely oblivious can do just because a grand majority of not only black people, but Americans all over are just completely oblivious to the whole democratic process and what they can do to get involved in their, in their communities. That's a really good question. I would point folks to the American Civil Liberties Union. So the ACLU every year, I want to say it's like three to two months out from every election, uh, they put out a voter guide, right? And like, mm -hmm. I'm always hesitant to point people in that direction because I always want them to do the work, right? Like I want them, I don't want them to just like see the recommended, right? Measure the recommended representative and say, all right, well, I'm just going to take this cheat sheet in and check off the box. Cause like, I want you to, I want you to vote your, your ideals. I want you to vote your conscience. I want you to vote like how you truly believe you should be represented. Mm -hmm. But I think, you know, as you said, you know, people have so many other things going on in their lives. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I think that's a good place to start. You can go to their website, you can, you know, there's a map, you click on your state, right? Then you can click out on your county, you can put in your, your zip code and it'll pop up um, and show you, you know, what the races are in your area. And mm -hmm. then it has certain links to those candidates' web pages, right? So you can research them. Um, it has certain links to, uh, what the individual measures and propositions are that'll impact you in your neighborhood. So you can, you can read those and research that. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it, it really is a, a, a really good guide um, to okay. show you what your choices may be. So yeah, just go, go to Google, type in ACLU um, and just, you know, um, you know, search, you know, candidate platforms, right. And mm -hmm. it'll, it'll give you that information. 
Um, and you can also, if you want to find out who um, your your reps are, um, you can go to um, you can go to the United States House website or the Senate website, and you same thing. You just type in your zip code, and it shows you who is currently representing you. Um, and they all have their voting record on their individual websites, so you can see what they have voted for. I mean, since they were first elected. Um, so there, yeah, there are very, very simple ways. Like you don't have to um, do too much, really. Uh, but I always suggest people go to ACLU's website, and and they'll be able to find all that information there. Okay, and that's for our listeners. That's definitely something that will be included in the description below this podcast. So. Whenever you're finished tuning into this, we'll we'll put those links all in there and just make sure you guys have access to those. So um, moving on to the next question. Privilege is a word that gets thrown around almost like a buzzword. Can you explain what it really means? And further, can you give some wisdom on how those with privilege can use it as a weapon, as a platform against this unfair system? A couple, I've, I've been encouraged by like a couple very high profile examples of people like leveraging white privilege for like racial justice in the last couple of days. There's the guy from Reddit who like stepped down mm-hmm. um, and like asked, or I don't know if he asked or like made sure, but that uh, like he would be replaced by a black staff member. And obviously it doesn't have to be something as dramatic as like giving up your job as the head of a company. Although, I mean, obviously that would be great if more people did that. Mm-hmm. But I think, <laughs> It can, it's even much smaller, like more daily things, like because of the, the way that like a lot of local government systems and like to, to, to some extent, like the, the federal government is set up, like the people who have money and consequently have political influence are, are listened to in a way that like people who can't affect the outcome of elections or like affect the decisions of policymakers don't have that influence. And I think it's important to like use like the opportunities that you get to like make your, your voice heard and listen to to amplify the voices of people who are who like can't be in those in those rooms to use that metaphor if you if you know that you have like i don't know i'm, I'm kind of struggling to come up with like a, a specific example but i think it's just that like you have to recognize like what things seem normal to you that are like actually advantageous um in like your daily life and use them to but i guess like i was trying to say amplify the voices of people who like don't get to be in those spaces that you get to be in or don't get to like be part of the conversations that you get to be part of or don't get to like influence the decisions that you get to influence and I think it, it requires you to like step outside of yourself and understand like how you exist in like bigger systems than just like your immediate family or like your your group of friends or your town. I agree. Um, I think privileges when what do they call her? Karen makes the call and says there's a black man threatening me or whatever the case may be and nothing's happening. I think that's privilege. I think you know when I have friends uh, that get pulled over and there's a white dude in the car with drugs on him. And they completely disregard him and go to the back seat and interrogate the black dudes. And, you know, the white guy gets off with it. You know, I think that's privilege. Or, or you get pulled over and you have something on you and you're Caucasian and it's okay with or privilege when we have a girl at my college who goes and is on hard drugs, very hard drugs. <laughs> and it's known, but yet nothing's done. But you have the black kid <laughs> who gets stopped in the uh, stopped in the bookstore and told to put your backpack up when you haven't done anything but get a but get good grades and be a stand-up guy i think that's what privilege is and i think it, it can be wielded and it's unfortunate that it can be but the reality is the exact opposite of the and it's much deeper but i think in, in general terms it's the exact opposite of the racial biases that we that we deal with 
it's 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 on the opposite side of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. We're looked at one way. I think a lot of times, uh, you know, white privilege is given the benefit of the doubt when we're not. So when I'm looked at as a thief for walking into a store, even though I'm not, they're looked at as upstanding, even though they might not be. And and, and that's how I view it, to be honest. I think that it's a little bit off the track of like privilege, so to speak, but more on like a track of what white people can do. So, I mean, I guess it goes hand in hand. But like we were talking about early, earlier, really anyone will follow stuff that they agree with. Like Aki, you talked about that. And if you are the one that, that gets influenced that, you know, um, begins to work with more black people in your 60s and you start to have this perspective change a little bit and you're still kind of in these circles with white people who are thinking like you used to think, you have to be the one to speak up and, and say something. You, you don't want to keep that silent. If you realize that white people are the root of that problem, of this problem, and you, you, you have to be the one to speak up. You can't keep it silent um, because that's just privilege in itself. Because like we were talking about, they don't, you don't have to. There's, as a white person, and let's say the woman that you had to talk with, the key, let's say she goes back to her five main friends. She doesn't have to go back and be like, you know what, I've kind of had like my perspective changed a little bit. I think we should have this conversation. She didn't have to do that. And that's privilege. But if she goes back, and says like, all right, I think we should all do our part to educate it. If like, maybe we should read this book or should um, educate ourselves in whatever way. That's that's kind of the way that it's gonna just start spreading. And just like, and then those five people, let's say three of those people kind of get influenced, then those three people will go to their circles and influence even more. And it's it's a slower process, but it will start to amplify. And that's kind of one of the, the better ways that, that white people, I think, can continue to use their privilege and use their position to, to kind of change the narrative, I would say. Yeah, no, that's good. I, I, I think it's honestly like what you just said, and it starts with acknowledging that it's there. Yeah. Because you don't, like we talked about earlier, you don't need to. You don't have mm-hmm. to. You don't have to actually think about it. It's, no, I don't think anybody really likes doing it. Nobody likes sitting down and having a deep, going in quiet time, no cell phone, no, no TV, no whatever, and really reflecting on things that we don't want to see. I don't like going in, and I'm just being honest, I don't like going in prayer and saying, God revealed me things that I don't want to see because it's uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And it's not comfortable for someone that has privilege when, when, when in your mind you don't, you haven't done anything wrong or you're, you don't understand that maybe you have wielded your privilege um, it's uncomfortable to be like, dang, I have been given an unfair advantage mm-hmm. or, you know, I do have privilege. It sucks a lot of times. Um, but that's the only way it's going to change is like you said, someone acknowledging it. And then that person that acknowledges it, having a conversation with someone else who hasn't acknowledged it, to hopefully open their eyes. Right. Um, and that's my, as a, as a black man in a mixed household, you know, my wife acknowledges it and she understands she's been there. She's seen the ladies, you know, hiding their purse when we sit down in the restaurants and she's been with me when cops have pulled me over. So like, she understands these things. One of my biggest things, it, it's a frustration. I think a lot of black people have is the, the unwillingness to, to admit that it's there. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like the elephant yeah. in the room and we know it's there, but you just won't look at it and you just, you, you know, you won't admit it. And it, it causes a lot of frustration. Um, for I think people of color. Mm, I think another thing that 
this one video, I don't know if you guys have seen it, but it had this one coach had all these kids standing standing in the field and had them all standing in a straight line. And then he said, take a step forward if you've ever had the opportunity to afford a tutor. Take a step forward if you've ever. So all these things that uh, the privilege that they they were then um, revealed to, it, you could see on their faces how uncomfortable they felt by having that privilege. And I think it's um, the first step is recognize that you have that privilege. And the second step is don't feel uncomfortable about having it, but try to use it in a way where like, all right, well, damn, like I, I do have a lot more opportunities than this, like or a lot more opportunities than uh, people of color do. So first thing, what what can I do? It needs to be looked at as an, an uh, a responsibility instead of like a, a privilege. So like, since I have this privilege, it's my responsibility to share it with everybody else and um, and educate everybody else. So it doesn't continue to be specifically my privilege. It could be everybody's privilege. I want to just throw one thing in there. Um, I think privilege i think i mean i think there's white privilege regardless of socioeconomic status mm -hmm. i think privilege also has to do a lot with money yeah as well and it's just unfortunate that people of color um living in impoverished areas um a little bit more often than you know people that aren't of color um now granted i think that even you know if, if you are you know, a broke white dude you're still gonna have more opportunities because of the fact you're white mm -hmm. but um, and you know, you could be LeBron James and still get, you know, nigger, you know, spray painted on your house. Mm -hmm. Those things are real. Um, and they still happen. And it's unfortunate. Mm -hmm. They do happen. But I think a lot of it also has to do with what can you do for me? And, um, a lot of that has to go down with money as well. So unfortunately mm -hmm. it's a selfish thing. It's, it's a, it's a personal person thing. If mm -hmm. I think that you can benefit me in some type of way and I can leverage what you have, I'm going to give you benefit or preferential treatment. And I, like, if you go on the comments on those videos, like I was looking at the comments of that video and a lot of people, and a lot of people have this view in general is like, Oh, it's, it's purely just a class thing. Like it's not even a racial thing. And like you mentioned, like generally um, it is black people living in those impoverished areas and in a lot of places at least. But I think it, it's important to understand that like we're talking about, this is a, it's a it's a symptom of like that whole systemic thing that where the legislation has has caused this like yeah. it's not just oh black people are randomly like more poor than white people like no it, that happened because of the roots of the the way that this country was made and even if it was a purely class thing which obviously it's not considering all the social implications that we've talked about it would still come back to racism in the first place just because of how the country has evolved favoring white people the entire time and uh michael i know you got to get out of here pretty soon so i was going to ask one more question before we um end it all off me and coleman we've had we've uh, seen players post stats about how it's not necessarily um at like what's depicted in the media and what's depicted on the news isn't necessarily as statistically relevant as it looks so like they say like uh well actually black people are only like in the minority of all the police brutality cases that have existed in the world and um it's not just uh, it's not just black people it's also white people so how how do you have these conversations with these people that rely on stats solely and that rely on the numbers of what's going on in the world compared to the actual reality that black people are in, in, are living through on a daily basis through all the subtle microaggressions that we deal with and the laws that are placed against us. How do you have those conversations with those people to look past those statistics and past those numbers to actually understand what's going on in this world? I mean, I'll leave you guys to it. So I'll just mention something really short. I think it's just kind of 
asserting that like the numbers don't tell everything like mm -hmm. the numbers are likely set up to be biased mm -hmm. against black people like um plus if you're going off of police killings um for example like it's not just when somebody gets killed that's the only instance of a black person being mistreated by the police like every single interaction between black people and the police is likely going to be on some scale more you know aggressive or militant or, or, or belligerent than a white person's interaction with a police officer period and the numbers are can only tell you so much about that mm -hmm. and that's i think that's kind of just the important thing for me when i when i try to at least tell convince these people what's going on Mm -hmm. And then before before you guys even mention anything, one thing I do want to mention, since a lot of our audience is going to be basketball players, is uh, when we when we look at solely stats for basketball, we all know stats don't tell the whole story. If you were to look at purely stats, then some players would be one player would be the greatest of all time compared to other players solely off stats. But we know that they just show half the picture. They don't show like the effect that a certain player had on their team as a leader. Or they don't show the effect that. Um, um, like the person had outside of basketball. So speak on how it's just really not just all stats that we have to look at and how these stats may even be misconstrued in a way to perpetuate what they want to perpetuate in the first place. Well, one thing I've, I've been seeing a lot in this particular context is people saying that there are more white people killed uh, by the police than black people every year or like over the last five years or whatever. Um, which like may be true, but there are also like five times as many white people in the country as there are yeah. black people. So like taking that at raw numbers is like not logical. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think, I guess just like on, on the most basic level, look at what the numbers actually say. Like if, you, if it's not a proportional comparison, then that, like that's just not really a, a legitimate comparison to make. But I also think specifically in the context of policing and like police killings, I don't really understand why the argument that white people are suffering from it too makes it like makes it less problematic you know like it the, the police shouldn't be killing anyone so to say that like but look at these numbers the police are also killing white people is like that just means you should be angry too it doesn't mean that like we should stop protesting the police and i feel like like with this and just like with this the same like principle applies to a lot of things i think the the first two that come to my mind are like the like system of of mass incarceration generally um, and specifically, uh, like the application of the death penalty. Um, I think both of those are like widely accepted as like being applied in racist and classist ways in a system of mass incarceration and in a system of like violent policing that is designed to maintain these like hierarchies of class and race that like have been here since the founding of the country that we've been talking about like throughout this conversation there will inevitably be people who get caught up in those systems who aren't the main targets of it. These, these systems are designed to control and subjugate black people. And like, if some white people get caught up in them, term feels reductive, but like, that seems like collateral damage in, in like the system's achievement of its actual goal. And, and Michael, aunt, do you have any thoughts from your perspective with the bill project and the incarceration that was going on? You know, I think, I mean, that was a, that was a great point. <laughs> that yeah, was such yeah, a great yeah, point. I mean, yeah. if, if you look at the, the mass incarceration of African-Americans in this country, based, based between, let's say, 2000 to 2020, we land anywhere between 
three to six to 10 times more African-American folks are incarcerated during that 20 year period than throughout the entirety of slavery, right? Like, Like that shows the abuse of the carceral system against African-Americans, the over-surveillance of African-American neighborhoods, the, um, the interrogation uh, that is used against African-Americans and the unjust and unfair tactics that are used against the African-American community. Um, again, we started this conversation off talking about systemic racism, right? Mm-hmm. Police killing of African-American men, women, and children is a small sliver, right, of, of this entire problem mm-hmm. of a whole United States system created to abuse, neglect, and take life away from African Americans. The genocide of black men, women, and kids by police officers is just one of those tactics, right? It's mm-hmm. just one of those practices. Mm-hmm. Um, and mass incarceration and death by, um, by sentencing is just another small fraction, although it is a larger fraction. Mm-hmm. Um, but even if you're looking at those statistics, right, it's like African Americans, although they, in some years, I'm not going to, I'm not going to say all the time, some years may be killed by police less than, than, than white people. We're still three to four times more likely to be killed by police mm-hmm. officers. If you look at the killings in 2019, I want to say there were something like 1,100, maybe a little more or less, give or take, people that were killed by police in 2019. There were only 25 days in our entire calendar year where a police officer didn't kill a person, right? And 24% of those people killed were Black people. And we only make up 13% of the overall public in the United States. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Think about exactly. that. 24% of the people killed by police officers are black, but we only make up 13% of the population. So again, that shows, right? The over-surveillance of the African-American community, mm-hmm. the over-confrontation um, that law enforcement takes to the African-American community, right? That, that just shows how many more interactions we have with law enforcement on a daily, monthly, yearly basis that mm-hmm. lead to the possibility of us being the race that is in the majority for having our chances of life taken away, whether it be by going six feet under or, or put behind bars. Mm-hmm. Um, and the only way that that is going to change is bringing people like us um, to discussions of power, whether that is being in an elected office to going to the the voting booth um you know and 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 we we do have to make that change i'll just end by saying you know those um closest to the problem are closest to the solution Mm -hmm. but we are furthest away from the power and and that's what needs to change very well said very well said all right well um so I do want to thank all of you guys for joining this, joining us on this podcast. It's very informative, very uh, educational to me, even. So um, I'm glad that you guys were all able to take the time out of your out of your days, your busy days, to speak with us on this. I truly believe that our listeners also have learned plenty and are appreciative. So thank you guys also for your time, and I appreciate your time so much. 
And uh, hopefully that this is something that somebody out there, at least one of our listeners can listen to and have their views and their their um, opinions and perspectives changed and uh, to align with what's actually going on in reality. So, um, again, thank you guys so much. And just want to appreciate you guys for your time. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having us. Hey. All right, guys. See you later.